you know, something I realize is they make all these fanciful movies like X-Men and all that stuff. You know, X-Men Apocalypse is one of my favorite ones, right, where they, they spend all their days trying to keep Jean from letting her power loose because it's too much, right? And if it comes out, they're afraid it's going to consume everybody, and so they spend their whole life trying to program her to keep it under wraps. And then at the end, the the demon guy, the apocalypse guy, the antichrist guy that is destroying the whole earth and and bringing destruction to the whole earth. They're trying to take that guy out. None of them can take him out, and they're all trying, and he's beating all of them. And all of a sudden, Gene floats up in the air and walks out and then just, boom, lets it all loose. And the light that comes out of her consumes him, right? Consumes the, the antichrist, the destruction, the death. Um, and you know, even the reason why we could have that kind of a movie, and even the reason why they call it the apocalypse, is because they, they're getting that from prophecy. And the most powerful movies we could make is if we would make movies about, about prophecy, right? And when I say prophecy, guys, um, I don't mean like words of wisdom or words of knowledge. I think we've confused what prophecy is in the body of Christ for a long time, where we think prophesying and prophecy is somebody giving you a word of knowledge, telling you about who you're going to marry or how many kids you're going to have or if you're going to get a house or whether you're going to have a ministry <laughs> or whether you're going to have a lot of money or, or something like that. Or who's going to be president, <laughs> right? We had a whole lot of that, right? And, and we've confused those kinds of things with prophecy and, and prophesying. And we don't despise words of, of knowledge or words of wisdom, but we don't want to confuse it with prophecy or prophesying. Because what happens is that someone can have a word of knowledge and not understand anything about the gospel. But if we think them having a word of knowledge makes them, quote unquote, the prophet, we're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of their doctrine. And they're going to come talking a whole lot of nonsense at some point. Because their gift ain't the gift of prophecy. Right? And so when I talk about prophecy... And when we think of prophesying, what the scriptures are actually talking about is talking about speaking the mystery that was revealed in Christ. That's prophecy. Prophecy is what Paul called the mystery that was hidden from ages before that had been revealed in Christ. That's why he said we speak hidden things, even the hidden things that are in Christ, right? And he talked about the wisdom of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, Christ, the power of God. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in Christ. So prophecy is simply the mystery that was revealed in Jesus, right? And so when you're prophesying, you're simply declaring the mystery that was revealed in Christ, right? And so we're going to look in, into prophecy today, and um, more specifically, we're going to look at the atonement and uh, what, what's known as the, the Day of Atonement. And um, the, the word atonement, it, it speaks of uh, a wrong being made right, atone, right, atoning. It, it speaks of a wrong being made right. It speaks of something that had gotten crooked, being made straight. It, think, it speaks of something being men, mended that had been torn, right? If, if a thing had gotten torn in it, um, atonement would be for the tear to have been mended, right? If you look in the, the scriptures, the um, scriptures talk about redeeming something when it talks about atonement or restoring something to its original design. That would be the meaning of atonement. And, and when you look in the scriptures, if you want just like a picture, because some people don't like intellectual things, if you just want a picture that's a figure of atonement, when God came to Adam and clothed upon Adam's nakedness with the life of his lamb, that's a picture or a shadow of the atonement, right? That's a picture or a shadow of the atonement. Sadly, in our society and in Christianity over the last 1,500 years, the, words ato the word atonement elicit thoughts of punishment, right? If you notice, everything I just said was consistent with restoration and not punishment. But the, the way that the atonement has been taught in our society, and probably for like 1,500 years, sadly enough, when we think of the word atonement, it elicits thoughts of punishment, right? And what's happened is, because we've defined sin wrongly as bad behavior, right? We say we've behaved badly, and now there needs to be an atoning for our bad behavior. And that leaves us in the place where we think of punishment instead of restoration, 
right? Somebody's got to pay for your bad behavior, right? A reckoning, right? There needs to be a reckoning for our bad behavior. And we say the reckoning is punishment, right? And so the whole concept of the atonement has been perverted. And it hasn't brought forth the, the proper thinking in us, and it hasn't produced the proper picture. And so we haven't been ga- engaging with true prophecy. When we talk about the atonement, we've been filled with thoughts of, a pun- of punishment. Okay? Now, the Day of Atonement is about atoning for sin. It is about atoning for sin. But it's about atoning for the wages that came upon mankind because of sin. It's about atonement. I'm going to say that again. It is about the atonement for sin. But when we look at the word sin, because we think sin speaks specifically or primarily of bad behavior, we never get to the part where we say that the wages of sin is death. And so when we think of the atoning for sin, we don't get to the part where we say, well, the atonement for sin is that sin was serving us with death. And the atonement for sin is God coming in atoning for the wages of sin that had come upon mankind, that had come upon in the earth. Right? We don't get to that place. One of the meanings for the word sin is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Again, because we start with sin as bad behavior, we say the mark is that God had for our lives is that we could behave properly. Listen, man, we don't know anything about how eternal life produces fruit when we think like that. Because even if God found that your behavior wasn't consistent with life, (laughs) he would see that the root problem is death. And so the way he would clean the outside of the cup is by cleaning the inside of the cup from death. It'd be by him removing the death, right? That's how he would atone for it. He would remove the death. So one of the meanings of sin is to miss the mark. It's to not be a partaker with God in his life, right? Sin is to not be partaking in life, right? You guys following the, the, the establishment? Of, of what sin is? The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. Here's how he defines sin in Romans 3. He says, all have sinned. You guys know what I'm talking about? Romans 3, all have sinned. And then he goes on to describe what he means when he says, and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so Paul says, all have missed the mark that God had for their life. And he defines the mark that God had for our lives was his glory having manifested in our bodies. And so you might think, now, now what is that? And so God had a mark for your life. And the mark he had for your life is that he set about from the beginning to create man in his image after the likeness of his immortality. That's what he said about from the beginning. When God dreamt of you, the thing he said is, I want these guys to function like me. I want them to live from the heart. I want them to function by the faith. I want them to have the spirit in them the way the spirit is in me. And I want them to be after the likeness of my immortality. This life that I have in myself is so beautiful that when this life can be set loose inside of a physical body, my goodness, man, the things that come out of that physical body are to die. And so that's the mark that that God had for our lives. Well, Paul says all fell short of the dream that God had for their life because death was reigning over everyone and no one was walking around having inherited immortality in their flesh. So that's how Paul defines sin. Not having immortality in your flesh. How many of you think you can do something about that? How many of you think God's despising you because you can't do something about that? You see how the the conversation begins to change when you start to understand what sin actually is? And you start to see that sin produces something called the works of the flesh. Not having life produces something in humans where they think they have to labor for life. And if humans try to labor for life, they don't have the ability in themselves to produce life. So the more they try to labor to have life, the more they labor to try to have comfort, the more they labor to try to have peace, the more they're going to see the fruit of death manifesting out of them. Right? So everybody fell short of the dream or the mark. That's when you think of mark, think of dream, right? Don't think of, well, there's a mark out there and God wants you to hit the mark. No, 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 no. God wants to hit the mark, right? He wants to hit the mark and come and give to you eternal life, right? He wants to produce in you that which will cause you to hit the mark. So when you think of mark, 
think of God's dream for my life. Because when you think of the word mark, many times you could think of what God wants for me. It's not what God wants for you, from you. It's what God has to give you. It's what God dreams for you. And so when you think of the mark, think of God's dream for your life. And every, Paul says it was a sin that everybody had fallen short of the dream God had for their life. It was a sin that human beings were under the reign of death and that no one had inherited immortality. He said that's a sin, okay? So from that perspective, the atonement is about God atoning for the fact that mankind was not in the likeness of his immortality. If you want to look at what was the tear, the tear was that we didn't have immortality and we were dying. So if God wanted to mend the tear, the way he would mend the tear or atone for the sin is he would come and give man his immortality. That's how he would atone for it. So atonement is about God atoning for the death that found an opportunity to manifest in the flesh of man and in the earth through one man, Adam. It's about him atoning for the death that Adam brought into the earth and that Adam found a way to produce in all of our bodies. Because Adam built a life in the earth when he trusted in his own strength. And he built a body for himself and every mankind that would be born in the earth after him when he looked to the strength in his own hand. And the body he built for us is called the body of sin or the body of death. Now God looked at the body of death we were clothed in and he said some things. And he says, it's not right for them to be clothed in the body of death. It's not right for them to be filled with fear. It's not right for them to be all the time laboring and toiling to have life. It's unjust for them to be filled with torment when I've created them to experience peace and love and joy. It's not right. This is what God is thinking in his mind. He, he saw it's not right because it's not what I desired for mankind. It's a sin for there not to be man, a man seated in the Godhead. And it, it's a sin for that kind of a thing. It's a sin for creation to be subject to vanity and to be subject to death. That's a sin. That's how God would be thinking of sin. It's a sin for mankind not to be chilling in the Father's house, eating from the table that the Father prepared for them. When God saw that we were running away from Him and filled with fear and shame, His heart said, that's a sin. And so when He thinks of atoning for sin, do you know what He thinks of doing? He thinks of removing fear from your heart. He thinks of putting your flesh to rest. He thinks of covering upon your nakedness. He thinks of removing the body of death that you've been clothed in. He thinks of building you a house that hasn't been built by man's hands and doesn't have sin and death in it. He thinks of building you a house that's filled with his immortality. That's how he thinks of atoning for sin. He thinks of clothing upon you with life, right? That's how he thinks about atoning for sin, right? So the atonement, is about God healing mankind from the punishment that had already come upon them because of sin. I don't know if you guys realize it, but death was already here. And God wasn't, God didn't bring it. And so God sees we're already being punished by sin. He's not busy thinking that there needs to be a reckoning, and the reckoning is he's going to punish us for our sin. He sees we're already being punished by sin, and he sees that it's not right for us to be suffering at the hands of sin because we were created for life and not death. And so how can I atone for the death that's in the earth? That's what God's thinking when he's thinking about the atonement. It's a sin for mankind to try to find life by the sweat of their own brow. It's not right. I created them to walk in my good work and not their own good work. It's crooked. It's out of whack that they're walking in their own good works. We got to atone for that. The way we're going to atone for that is by removing death from the earth. Death is what's crooked. And so the way you would make death straight is by consuming it to the uttermost where it ain't there no more. And so the atonement is about God making straight everything that got crooked through his Christ. That's what it's about. It's about God consuming death with life. When you think of the atonement, you ought to think of God consuming death with life. You shouldn't be thinking of God being angry about your behavior and now he wants to punish you. Or he's got to punish someone because there's punishment that needs to come to you. <laughs> if you look, when Alpha and Omega who is Christ Jesus in the book of Revelation. You would think everybody knows that, but I just had a long debate with somebody on Facebook that says Alpha and Omega is not Jesus. Listen, 
the, the insanity that you'll find is amazing. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. When Jesus was walking the earth as the Son of Man, he was Alpha and Omega. In fact, Jesus couldn't be the high priest unless he was Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega is actually what the high priest was always prophesying about. And so when Alpha and Omega, who's in Christ Jesus, if you, if you look in the scriptures in Revelation 21, he says, behold, I make all things new. When Alpha and Omega says, behold, I make all things new, it's talking about the atonement or the day of atonement. You guys see any punishment in that sentence? What do you hear? Restoration. We'll keep going. When Revelation 20 says that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, it's talking about the atonement. When death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, that's talking about the atonement. When Revelation 21 says there'll be no more death, it's talking about the day of atonement. Because it wasn't right for the creation that God brought forth, having never intended for it to have death in it, it was a sin for there to be death here. And the way he comes and atones for the sin of the world is he removes the wages of that sin, which was death manifesting here, and he removes it and he consumes it to where there's no more death in the creation. That's the atonement for sin. It's restoration. It's about God serving people with an incorruptible life. It's about God establishing the reign of an indestructible life in this earth. It's about God bringing a heavenly country forth in this earth. A country that's on a firm foundation, that can't be shaked, that can't be moved. And the reason why it can't be shaken, it can't be moved, is because it's not a built, built upon a perishable life. And it's not built upon uh, carnal laws and ordinances that are meant to try to mitigate death. It's not built upon a constitution that's got a bunch of laws in the constitution. And all those laws are built upon a perishable life. And it's because they're built upon a perishable life, they're all busy with death management or mitigating death. The Day of Atonement is about God establishing a heavenly country in the earth that doesn't have constitutions, it doesn't have man-made laws trying to mitigate death, because this heavenly country is built upon the reign of Jesus' indestructible life. The government in this heavenly country is an indestructible life. You don't need man-made laws in the presence of an indestructible life. You only need man-made laws when there's death present. Man-made laws are meant to try to manage corruption. You don't need laws if there's no corruption. And so God doesn't give laws to try to mitigate death in our lives. What he does is he gets to the root and he removes death. That's how he atones. You ought to be the Lord atone right now in me. Right? Yeah, there does need to be a reckoning. You know what the reckoning is? It's the rebuking of the devourer. It's a destroying of the works of the devil. It's God judging the works of the devil to be unjust. It's about God judging the plan of the devil for human beings to be invalid, impermissible, unthinkable, unallowable. And about him serving that judgment, issuing that decree when he removes death from creation. Hallelujah. Now, one of the things that's happened and hopefully this has changed through the course of us sitting together. Hopefully when we think of the cross, we no longer think of punishment. Hopefully we no longer see it that way. It was about Jesus as God willingly entering into our death so that the death that manifested in our flesh could be consumed to the uttermost. If he wants to atone for sin, he's got to remove death from the flesh. Well, he can't remove death from the flesh unless he can get inside of a flesh that has death in it. And in getting inside of a flesh that has death in it, he has an incorruptible life in himself that will consume that death from the uttermost and create a flesh that can never die or be touched by sin again. Right? Hopefully we start viewing the cross that way. That it wasn't about someone needing to be punished for our sin. It's about the only way we could be set free from sin is if we could be divorced from it. And if that which was incorruptible could put on our corruption and remove our corruption from the inside out. Right? But because we've thought of the, the atonement as, as, as punishment for sin instead of res restoration for sin, we, we've... What's happened, and this has messed a lot of people up, and I don't care. Um, 
It just, it's just the truth. What's happened is, is we thought the atonement happened at the cross. That's what we thought. The atonement happened at the cross. Listen, this isn't too less than the cross. As you guys know, the, the cross is my jam. You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that teaches about the cross more than me. I mean, I actually teach that the cross is the power unto life, that Jesus saw the cross as the foundation from where he would inherit eternal life, right? But the atonement was not at the cross. If, 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 Jesus, would have, if Jesus would have just died on the cross and then that was it, there would have never been an atonement. And so the atonement couldn't have happened at the cross. What I will say, though, is, is the work that was needed for there to be an atonement is wrapped up in the cross. But the cross is not the atonement. And what I want to say is, is there's a whole process that goes down before there can be an atonement. And the cross is part of the process that has to go down before there can even be an atonement. And you might think, what am I talking about? Where well, I'm going to run you through all these examples and details in the Old Testament. Um, and you guys will just have to bear with me. And uh, let me talk about these things because they excite me and you love me. And so because you love me, you let me talk about things that excite me. <laughs> you guys ever notice how that works in relationships? <laughs> I'm joking, man. Um, but I'm right. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for loving me, Linda. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, it is exciting. But we were just talking about how the, the, the atonement wasn't, didn't happen at the cross. And that messes a lot of people up because they've been taught for so long atonement was about your sin needing to be punished. And then they paint the picture of a guy getting punished at the cross. And so therefore the cross had to be the atonement. But in the Old Testament shadows of the atonement for sin, the atonement for sin didn't happen when the high priest sacrificed the bulls and goats on the altar. That's not when the atonement happened, if you read in the Old Testament scriptures that talk about the, the day of atonement. And if the high priest stopped there, and after he offered the, 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 blood, the bulls and goats on the altar, if he would have just stopped there, there could have never been any atonement. And if you look in the day of atonement, the atonement wasn't until the high priest appeared in the holiest place, in the presence of God, by the power of the blood of the bulls and goats or with the blood of the bulls and the goats. The atonement didn't happen until the high priest could get into the holiest place in the presence of God with the blood of the bulls and the goats. That's when the atonement started getting down. So if the high priest on the day of atonement just went and offered the blood and bulls and goats on the altar and was like, hey, that's good enough, man. This blood's kind of gross, you know? I'm done. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm sharing with you guys some of the deep thoughts in my heart. When I was a young guy reading the scriptures, I said, wow, man. You start reading Leviticus sometimes and all the blood. And you're like, my goodness, Lord. You know? And I thank God that he gives me understanding now. Right? But if he would have just stopped there and not gone through the, the bronze laver and not gone through the, the holy place and into the holiest place, there could have never been any, any atonement at all. And so the way this would go down is on the day of atonement, the high priest would offer bulls and goats. They would sacrifice bulls and goats on something called the bronze altar. Right now to, to connect some of these things, the bronze altar was a figure or a shadow of the cross. OK, that's what it was pointing to. The cross is the altar that that bronze altar in the Old Testament was talking about. So they would sacrifice the bulls and goats. And then what they would do is they would get into this giant bronze laver that is part of the temple or the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle. And they would pass through that bronze laver. It's filled with water. It's like a giant bathtub. You know what I'm saying? And uh, we've seen some nice giant bronze bathtubs nowadays, huh? The modern uh, bathtubs. You could see some of those kinds of things. And so they would pass through that bronze laver, and they would have the blood of the bulls and goats with them, and they would pass through the outer court, and they would pass into the inner court with the blood of the bulls and the goats, and then they would pass into the holiest place, the holy of holies, in the presence of God, and they would have the blood of the bulls and goats with them, and they would sprinkle it. Right? They would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That's what they would do once they got into the holiest place. Now, I like to give people explanations or understanding about why the blood. Because you could think of why the blood. Especially if you're wondering, if it's not about punishment, then what's the blood about? Right Now, when you look at the blood, 
The blood was the power by which the high priest could enter the holiest place. And something I want you guys to keep in the back of your mind is there was something that was keeping us from the holy place. There's something that stood opposed to mankind being in the holiest place. And the blood became the power by which the high priest could enter into the, the holiest place and stand in the presence of God. And I'm going to get to this in great detail, but if you hadn't already figured it out, it wasn't God that stood in the way of mankind being in the presence of God. Right? It wasn't God. And so the blood was the power by which the high priest could enter into the holiest place. The sprinkling of the blood wasn't for God's conscience. If you read in the letter of the Hebrews, it doesn't say that God's conscience is purged by the blood. Whose conscience is purged by the blood? Ours. Okay, so there's something that goes down in our conscience, in the conscience of a human being, when they would enter into the presence of God and stand face to face with God. And the thing that would go down in our conscience wasn't a good thing, it wasn't born from life. And in fact, what it would do is it would work fear in our hearts and work condemnation in our hearts. Our own conscience would accuse us and it would produce death in our hearts. Well, the blood was designed to purge our conscience from the accusation that was accusing us. It was designed to purge our conscience from the condemnation that would come alive inside of us when we stood in the presence of God. So there was no way for the high priest to be in the presence of God without the blood. The blood was the power for him to be able to stand there without a conscience that accused him. It was the power to justify the high priest from the accusation of the evil one is what it is. Right? You guys following that? And so it wasn't for the conscience of God, the blood. It was for the conscience of the high priest. It was, it was so his eyes could be anointed with eye salve. I talked about in this revel, in Revelation 3 last week, and I'm going to get into it more. The blood was in order to anoint the high priest's eyes with eye salve. So the shame of his nakedness wouldn't be uncovered in his sight. And the point was... In his, in his eyes being anointed with eye salve, in his nakedness not being uncovered in his sight, it would justify him from the accusation of the evil one. So the blood of the sacrifice was with the intent to justify the high priest, not to God, but to justify the high priest from the accusation of the evil one that was coming against him. Because Satan was accusing the brethren to God all our days, it says. It says you overcome the accusation of the evil one by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. I talked about this in the Talmud, but when Moses went up the mountain and stood on holy ground to get the tablets of testimony, and when he was standing on that holy ground, it was grace ground. It was actually sapphire stone, which is stone for grace. And if you look at the stone that the tablets of testimony were written on, they weren't written on like martyr stone. They weren't written on the stone, the bricks that we make. The tablets of testimony were written on sapphire stone. Moses was standing on sapphire stone. The same stone that they said is the throne of grace, a sapphire throne of grace. And so when Moses was going up the mountain to receive the tablets of testimony, it was said in the Talmud, and they didn't understand what this stuff was about, but it was said that there were angels along the way telling him he couldn't go up there, standing opposed to him, standing in the presence of God. Telling him he had no right to be there. That it wasn't right for him to be there. And you can read several other examples of this that I'll get to. But in Zechariah, it talks about Satan standing opposed to Joshua, the high priest, when he's in the presence of God. Right? And so Joshua, the high priest, needed to be justified, not to God, not from God, but from the accusation of the evil one, the one that stood opposed to him. He needed to be justified. He needed to have his eyes anointed with eye salve. So when he was in the presence of God, he didn't see his nakedness and the serpent couldn't uncover his nakedness. But instead he would see the white raiment that he was clothed in and he would see the crown of life that God had put on his head and that would rebuke the, the devil. That's why God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand that's been plucked out of the fire? And so the blood was the power for the high priest to stand in the presence of God and not have his conscience condemn him. And what the blood did is it served as a testimony to rebuke the accusation of the evil one. That was the purpose. Now what would go down is the people in seeing that 
the high priest was justified from the accusation of the evil one, what would happen is the people would see the high priest was justified from the accusation and that would purge their conscience from the accusation of the evil one also. And so the high priest would come out having not died in the presence of the Lord. And that would mean he was justified from the accusation. And if he's justified in the midst of the accusation, that's now purged my conscience from the accusation also. It's rebuked the devourer in my heart. It's now purged my conscience from the accusation. It's now an eye salve for my eyes where I'm not beholding my body of death. My nakedness isn't being uncovered in my midst, but my nakedness has been covered upon by the life of God's lamb. That's what the blood is in, the, the life is in the blood. You guys following that? And so the, the, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, it was a figure of something. It was trying to paint a picture for us of what would go down in Jesus. And the figure that it was, it was a figure of the accuser of the brethren being cast out of the holiest place. Be gone. Be gone, devil. Be gone, Satan. Your accusation has been judged against. Right? And if you keep reading on the Day of Atonement, they had the scapegoat. Well, if you look at the word in scapegoat in Hebrew, it's Azazel. And you know what they said Azazel was? Satan. And so one of the goats would be sent from the camp, away from the camp, permanently banished from the camp. That was a picture of God casting out the evil one and casting out the accuser of the brethren. Hebrews talks about the accuser of the brethren being cast out after Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, doesn't it? The one who accused our brethren day and night has been cast out. Azazel, the Satan, the scapegoat, the one who accused us, the one who pointed at our body of death, all the time filling our conscience with the death we saw in ourselves, all the time uncovering our nakedness in our midst. He's been cast out of the presence of God because there's a human being that's now been clothed upon with the very life of God who had a body of death and that body of death has been covered in life and now we see that body and that body's full of life and it purges our conscience from the accusation of the evil one. We don't see ourselves as naked. We see ourselves as covered upon. Our eyes aren't filled with the body of death. Our eyes are filled with the flesh that can never die. Die, and that casts out the accusation of the evil one from our hearts. And so when the scapegoat got sent away from the camp as Azale, the casting out, the casting out of the accusation of the evil one, that's when the Day of Atonement would be fulfilled. And the Day of Atonement was all about the restoration of God's people from the work of the devil. What was the work of the devil? Keep the people from the presence of God. How are we going to keep the people from the presence of God? We're going to uncover their nakedness every time they seek to approach God. We're going to point at the body of death they're clothed in every time they seek to approach God. That's going to work accusation in their hearts and their hearts will condemn them when they're in the presence of God. That's the work of the devil. That leaves you laboring to try to give yourself life. That leaves you trying to clothe yourself with fig leaves. That leaves you all the time desiring peace and love and joy, laboring real hard to get it, working real hard to situate your life in just such a way that it can look so good that you feel it's a good life. Right? But the more you do that, the more you find the fruit of death everywhere. That's the work of the devil. Well, the Day of Atonement was about God destroying that. Does that make sense? You guys following that so far? You see what God's trying to atone for? It's not right for my people to stand in my presence with a heart that accuses them. It's not right for my people to stand in my presence and have condemnation manifest in them. It's not right for their minds to be filled with their nakedness or the body that's dying when they stand in my presence. It isn't right. We're going to atone for that. 
And we're going to do a thing where our people can stand in our presence, look us in the face, and their hearts be filled with love, and their hearts cry out Abba when they see us, instead of their hearts being filled with fear and shame. We're going to atone for that fear and shame they filled with, and the way we're going to atone for it is by manifesting our love in their hearts. Hallelujah. You see, he wants to atone for the fear that's in your heart. How do you think you atone for fear by punishing someone? So someone's filled with fear. You think you're going to atone for that fear by punishing them? No, you know how you're going to atone for that fear? You're going to mend their heart from fear. And the way you mend their heart from fear is by filling it with love. We don't understand what God's busy with, right? And this is why prophecy is so important. And this is why we don't want to confuse people who maybe the Spirit manifests in them, and they give a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, which thank God for that. We don't despise those parts, but we don't look to that as a sign that they're the teachers of doctrine, right? That's not a sign that they're the teachers of doctrine. That's not the same as the gift of prophecy. And the the body of Christ has been tossed to and fro for years because we want life so bad that we get so mesmerized every time someone performs a magic trick, right? That dude pulled a rabbit out of the hat. He told me what my address was. He must be the man of God. You see how ridiculous that sounds? <laughs> okay. Now, all those things that I was talking about was only a shadow. They were a figure. And they were actually prophesying of Christ as God's high priest and what Christ would do to restore all things. That's what it was prophesying of. Hebrews 9 says that Christ didn't enter into the holiest place made with hands, which was only a figure of the true tabernacle and true holiest place, but he ascended into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on behalf of God and mankind. And so God busy wanting him to appear because God busy wanting to destroy the works of the devil. And we're busy wanting him to appear because we're wanting him to destroy the works of the devil. And so God and us are on the same page, right? It's not that we're trying to get on the same page and Jesus is now going to make God like us. Hebrews goes on to say, so all that stuff in the Old Testament with the Day of Atonement, it was the earthly tabernacle. It was actually pointing to a heavenly tabernacle. And it was actually prophesying of the work God would do to destroy the accusation of the evil one, or to rebuke the devourer, as Zacharias says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It's prophesying of that. And so it was just a shadow. Hebrews 9 goes on to say that Jesus didn't enter the heavens by shedding the blood of bulls and goats. The earthly high priest shed the blood of bulls and goats, and that was the power by which he entered into the holiest place. Hebrews says Jesus didn't enter into the whole earthly tabernacle, neither did he enter in by the blood of bulls and goats, but he entered into the heavenly place on account of having shed his own blood. Now there's a whole lot to say about that that is wrapped up in the scriptures. Okay, and we're going to walk through Jesus now as the high priest. Jesus was first anointed as a high priest before he even became a man. And what I want to say is we only know high priest according to human flesh, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because we have human flesh. But what I want to say is if you don't see that Jesus was anointed high priest when God said, let there be light, and the light entered the earth, you're not understanding that the high priest was always just a shine of Alpha and Omega, bringing about God's eternal purpose for his life with mankind in the earth. Right? So Jesus was determined to be high priest when God said, let there be light. But if you want to talk about his earthly ministry, he was anointed high priest in the Jordan River when the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's when he was anointed high priest in his earthly ministry. Okay, And then you could keep describing that when he was manifested as the Christ or proven to be the Christ when he was raised from the dead and sat at the right hand of God. Then he was anointed a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because he's reigning through the power of an indestructible life. right? And in fact, God's high priest would have to have an indestructible life. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to establish an indestructible life in the earth. And so the only way you could actually be high priest is if you had an indestructible life. That's the only way. And so when that dove descended on Jesus in the Jordan River, that was God anointing this guy as high priest. 
And there's all type of typology you could get into, but John the Baptist would have been the lawful high priest if you look in the Chronicles. And one high priest passed it on to the next high priest. And so there's John laying his hands on Jesus, anointing Jesus to be high priest. Something else they did to anoint someone high priest, they poured oil over their head. Right? Well, when the dove descended upon Jesus like the Holy Spirit descended from heaven, that was a picture of the oil being anointed on Jesus' head and Jesus being anointed as high priest. Because him offering his body on the cross would have never meant anything unless he was a high priest. Because the high priest has to offer the sacrifice. And so here's Jesus anointed as the high priest. Now he can offer a sacrifice. So he takes his own body. His body is the sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats or not the bodies of bulls and goats. He takes his own body to the cross. The cross is a picture of the bronze altar that the high priest in the Old Testament would sacrifice the bulls and goats on. So there he is offering himself on the bronze altar, his body on the cross, and he sheds his blood there on the cross. There he is shedding his blood. Now remember, we just said that the power for the, the, the high priest in the Old Testament to enter into the holiest place was the shedding of the blood. Okay? So the power by which Jesus was able to ascend into the heavenly place or into the heavens was his blood. It was that he shed his blood on the cross. That was the power for him to be able to ascend into the heavenly place. It was on account of him having shed his blood. It was on account of him having put off the body of death. It was on account of him having put off corruption that he was able to pass through the sea that was between the heaven and the earth. If you read in Genesis 1, what does it say? That there was a sea separating the heaven and the earth. The bronze laver that the high priest in the Old Testament passed through, it was a sea. It was a picture of the sea that separated heaven and earth. And it was a picture of Jesus who would shed his blood on the cross and put off the body of corruption. And in putting off the body of corruption, he would be able to ascend through the sea that separated heaven and earth. And he would be able to pass through the first heaven. And he would be able to appear in the presence of God in the third heaven. If you read in 1 Corinthians 15, it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither can corruption inherit incorruption. So the only way Jesus could appear in the heavenly place and inherit the kingdom of God inside of his physical body is if he first shed the body of death. He had to put off corruption. And when he shed his blood, he put off the body of death. He was raised in a body that wasn't filled with sin and death anymore. He was no longer corruptible or corrupted. So now he stood as a man, as the son of man, who hadn't trusted in his own strength, but had seen the love in the father's eyes and had trusted in the strength in the father's hand. And because of that, he resisted sin even unto his blood. His blood being shed. Now he put off the body of corruption. Now he can ascend into the heavenly place in the presence of God as the son of man. And now he can receive the kingdom of God inside of his body. He's doing the atonement. Because what do you think is going to rebuke the devourer? What do you think is going to rebuke the accusation of the evil one? What is the accusation of the evil one? We don't even understand that. We think the accusation of the evil one is, you did bad. You were a bad boy. You were a bad girl. We're like, yes, we were. The accusation of the evil one Jesus is the word made flesh, guys, about everything. He's the word made flesh about what the accusation is. And we see at the cross what the accusation of the evil one is. You're not the children of God. What did he say about Jesus, the son of man? You ain't the son of God. And the reason we know you ain't the son of God is because look at that body of death you're clothed in. You see him accusing Jesus? You see him standing against Jesus as the son of God? So Jesus is appearing in the heavenly place as the son of man. Well, the scripture says you can't in, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. What did he shed? His blood. Now he's no longer standing in a body full of corruption. Now he can inherit the kingdom of God as the son of man. Now he shows up in the heavens because he passed through the sea having shed the body of corruption. Now he's standing there. There's Satan standing opposed to him. But he's not in a body of death. He shed it. 
And that's when the Lord would say, that's the fulfillment in the scriptures with Zechariah. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand that's been plucked out of the fire? And then he's clothed. Boom. And the fair mitra is put on his head. That's Jesus receiving the very glory of God's immortality inside of his physical body. That rebuked the accusation of the evil one. Because Satan said they're not the sons of God. Mankind is not the children of God. Well, here's a man and he's got God's immortality in his body. How can you say he's not the son of God? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. That cast the accusation of the evil one out of the presence of God. <laughs> you guys see that? You see what God wanted. He wanted to stand face to face with us. Like he wanted to be able to look us in the eyes. And he wanted us to be able to look him in the eyes and see that there was only love there in his eyes. That's what he wanted. He wanted to love us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. That's what God wanted. Forget about you loving God with all your strength. If you want to interpret that right, that's got nothing to do with what you're going to do for God. The way you love God with all your strength is by you being persuaded that he loves you with all his strength. Here in his love, not that you love God, but that God loves you. And so he wanted to spend all his days loving you, serving you, hanging out with you. But there was a problem because our conscience accused us in his presence. Because by one man, Adam, we were now clothed in death. And the, the shame of our nakedness was in our sight. And so we could never get close enough to God without fear working death in us. There was the serpent who stood opposed to us. The serpent would show up and uncover our nakedness by pointing at the body of death. Do you know what the serpent tried to accuse Jesus with? The death of the cross. That's what he tried to accuse him with. You want to know what this devil's trying to work in your life? You know, the only tool the devil has is to point at the death you see and then use that to accuse you. That's all we can do. That's it. That's it. So he shows up, he points at the death, and he says, are you really the children of God? Look at this death. He uses that to fill us with fear and shame. And we're like, how many of you ever thought, do I really believe? Where do you think that comes from? I promise you, What's fathered that thought in you is the death you see and the way you're judging yourself for how you're reacting to it. That's the accuser of the brethren. That's the accuser trying to work death in you. Revelation 12, we're going to run through these verses. Revelation 12 says, Satan accused the brethren day and night before God. Revelation 13 says, we overcome what? The accusation of the evil one. By what? The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus says in Revelation 3.18, Buy of me gold tried in the fire that you would be rich and clothed in white raiment, that white raiment might clothe you and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear and your eyes are anointed with eye salve that you might see. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Buy of me gold. Partake with me in this faith because this faith will anoint your eyes where your nakedness is no longer uncovered in your sight, where the body of death is no longer uncovered in your sight, but you have eyes to see that God has covered upon your body of death by the life of his lamb. And you're made rich because you're clothed in the white raiment that comes from God. If you look at the marriage ceremony in Matthew, is the raiment there or did you have to come in your own raiment? God's the one who provided the clothing, isn't it? You didn't provide your own clothing. And when you tried to provide your own clothing, what was found for you when you were in there? Shame. Because the accuser of the brethren would come and point at you and uncover your body of death. So why did Jesus ascend into heaven? He ascended into heaven on behalf of God and mankind to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle. He ascended and appeared so the accuser of the brethren could be cast out. 
He ascended into the holiest place in the heavenly tabernacle, having shed his blood for the purpose of purging mankind's conscience from their body of death. How does he purge our conscience from the body of death? We see him covered upon in God's life. That purges our conscience from the body of death. That heals us from shame. It pushes out fear. It pushes out the accusation of the evil one. Right? He ascended into heaven and received the glory of God inside of his physical body so we could be anoint our eyes could be anointed with eye salve and our sight be filled with him in the life that he's clothed in and our sight not be filled with the body of death. Paul describes this eye salve when he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm in an earthen vessel, and this earthen vessel might be perishing, and it might be subject to decay, but my mind isn't filled with the perishable body I have right now. My sight isn't filled. It's been anointed with eye salve, and what my sight sees is the treasure that's inside of this earthen vessel, which treasure I see seated at the right hand of the Father, clothed in the immortality of God. Hallelujah. And I see that I've been clothed upon with the life of God's lamb. And even though, as John says, it's not yet seen what this body will be clothed with, I don't yet see immortality on this body. My heart has been clothed in the life of God's lamb. And that has rebuked the devourer in my heart. How does he try to devour you? He tries to devour you by pointing at the death he sees in your life. Well, when your life is clothed, when your heart is clothed, in the life of God's lamb, that life dwells in your heart. And you know what it does? It rebukes the devourer because it rebukes every word of death that tries to come against you. <laughs> you see that? He had to be able to inherit the kingdom of God inside of the physical body as the son of man for the accusation to be cast out, for us to be justified as the accusation. The only way he could inherit incorruption is if he put off the body that was corrupted. He put off the body that was corrupted at the cross. And now he was raised up in a body free from corruption that could inherit the immortality of God and that could have him as the son of man seated at the right hand of God. And then we see Jesus justified from the accusation of the evil one. Which accusation was he's not the son of God? We see Jesus was justified from the accusation of the evil one. We see he was justified from the body of death. And that begins justifying our hearts. And it re begins purging our conscience from the accusation of the evil one. It cleanses our conscience from the body of death. And we no longer see the body that's dying that sin built, but we see the body that ever liveth, that God built. We see that we have a tabernacle in heaven that's been made by the strength in God's hand, not the tabernacle in this earth that was made by the strength of Adam's hand, and that purges our conscience from the accusation of the evil one. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. So now because of that, we have the first fruits of the atonement. Remember, the atonement is about atoning for all the harm that came to us because of sin. Because a whole lot of harm already came to us. We've all been beaten down by the sin that was in this world. And the atonement is about God healing us from the beat down that we've taken at the hands of this world. That's what it's about. And so because of Jesus in, in, inheriting the kingdom of God in his physical body and being sat down at the right hand of the Father inside of the Godhead, there's a man seated in the, in the Godhead now. There's a man seated at the right hand of God. God rebuked rebuke the devourer by seating Jesus at his right hand. That's how he rebuked the devourer. Taking a man who was clothed in the body of death, covering that body of death with the body of life, and seating that man at his right hand, that rebuked the devourer. And that's the fulfillment of the scripture that says the Lord rebuke you, Satan, in Zechariah 3. In the scripture where the Lord says the Lord rebuke you, Satan, has been fulfilled in our midst in that man being sat down at the right hand of God. He's atoning. It's not right for our conscience to accuse us, so he comes to atone for that by purging it from the accusation. He's atoning. He's restoring our conscience back to this place of innocence. 
where we're not dwelling in a place where we're judging our lives by what we see here. Right? The Lord rebuke you, Satan, has been fulfilled. There's a man seated in the Godhead at the right hand of the Father. God said it was unjust for man not to be seated here. God atoned for the injustice by seating a man there. It's a sin for there not to be a man in the Godhead. God atoned for the sin by putting a man there. (laughs) Him who was stealing from us can steal no more. We have the first fruits of the atonement. He can't steal from me anymore because the devourer has been rebuked by the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of God, having inherited immortality and pouring out of himself the spirit of that immortality inside of me right now. The spirit of immortality abides in me now. God has anointed me with his immortality now. That mouth is in me now. Woe is me if that life is not in me now. Let me drink for tomorrow I die. He's poured out the spirit of that life on all flesh. That that spirit contains the promise of life to all who will let the Father serve them with his lamb. Right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels now. Our lives have been born from the incorruptible seed that is Christ now. Our hearts cry out, Abba, now. Our hearts have been purified from fear and our flesh has been put to rest now. We have a surety that God's life is abiding in us now. And that life is ever growing, ever expanding, ever serving to conquer the death and the tribulation in this world that tries to come against us. God has atoned. We'll finish with this. Something I see in the body of Christ, we struggle to understand the first fruit and the final fulfillment. We struggle to see that both exist. So we got a bunch of people that focus on the first fruit and they completely lose sight of the final manifestation. And then we get people that focus on the final manifestation and they completely forget about the first fruit. Right? And either side is not good or it's not right. Either side leaves something missing for the people right and so that's the first fruits of the atonement i just described we have that now we have the spirit dwelling in us now warring against the death in this world in us now right pointing us to the life we see in jesus and how he was clothed upon with covered that's one of the meanings of the word atonement you know that right in the hebrew the word atonement means to cover it means to cover it's the hebrew word kafar it means to seal something It means to pitch something within and without, to cover, to cover upon, to cover sin. How do you cover sin? The way you cover sin is you cover upon the body that's dying with the body that can never die. That's how you cover sin. We think you cover sin by punishing someone so their guilt can be removed. Come on, man. Punishing sin cannot build a body that can't die. Punishing sin cannot cover a body that's dying with a body that can never die. The way you cover sin is you clothe upon the nakedness that was uncovered by sin by the life of God's lamb. That's how you do it. So the final fulfillment, Acts 3.21, we'll finish with this. Speaking of Jesus and speaking of the final manifestation of the day of atonement, we have the first fruits of the atonement. There is a coming day of atonement that the scriptures talk about. Acts 3.21, speaking of that day of atonement that's coming, says, speaking of Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So from the time that Adam brought death into the world, All God's holy prophets began prophesying of what God would do to restore everything to what he intended in the beginning, which was for heaven and earth to be collided as one and for earth to be inhabited with an indestructible life where there's no sin or death anywhere. So ever since Adam brought death into the world, God began prophesying of how he would crush the serpent's head. He began prophesying of how he would clothe upon man's nakedness with the life of his lamb. He began prophesying about how the serpent would return to dust when he told the, du- the serpent, because you've done this all your days, you will eat dust. 
He began prophesying it from the beginning. So Acts says they received Jesus into heaven, sat down as the Son of Man, inheriting the glory of God until the time of the restitution of all things. That word restitution, guess what it means? Restoration. Doesn't speak about punishment, does it? So Jesus was received into heaven until the time where everything would be restored, the restoration of all things. Hebrews 9.28, speaking of Jesus, says it this way. He offered himself once to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It's talking about Jesus coming and establishing an indestructible life in the earth is what it's talking about. He came to deal with sin the first time. That's the reason why Israel missed Jesus when he came. They expected him just to come and establish the kingdom right then. They didn't realize that he had to enter into death first and that death had to be overcome in the flesh and that there had to be a period of time where death was overcome in the flesh and for people to hear the gospel so people could be braided together with God in his indestructible life and not perish with this world when this world, the death that's in it, manifests and capitulates on itself. So that day of atonement, the actual day, it's called, or the day of our Lord, right? That's about Alpha and Omega establishing the reign of an indestructible life in the earth. It's the day the sons of God come into the presence of God. You know, it talks about that with Cain and Abel on the day where they appear before God. That was a figure of the atonement. When it talks about Job on the days that the sons of God came in the presence of God, it says Satan came there also with him. You notice that? You know why Satan came also? To stand opposed to them, to accuse them. And so on that day where the Lord comes to establish an indestructible life, it's the day that all of us, the sons of God, are going to come into the presence of the Lord. It's the day we're going to stand face to face with God, just like Jesus did when he ascended into the heavenly tabernacle. And we're going to receive the same reward Jesus received. We're going to receive the reward for the work that we've done. And when I say the work that we've done, guys, don't allow the world's definition of work to corrupt your thinking. It's not the work you've done with your own hands. It's what Jesus called the work of Abraham. Jesus described the work of Abraham when he said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. What is he saying? Jesus says, Abraham saw the day of the Christ. Abraham saw the day when Alpha and Omega would show up in the earth. Abraham saw the day where death would be eternally destroyed and he would be clothed in a body that was glorified with the immortality of God instead of the body of death that was built by sin and that he would inherit a heavenly country and earth where there was no remnant of sin and death. The scripture says Abraham never thought the promised land was actually the promised land. He says we still dwelt in tents. He saw the promised land was prophesying of a heavenly country that would be established in the earth. And he looked for the day of our Lord, the day where Alpha and Omega would show up into the earth and would make all things new. And he would make all things new by establishing the reign of an indestructible life in the earth. And we would receive the reward that comes from working the work of God, which is to believe on the Christ that he sent. The reward we receive is the kingdom of God inside of our flesh and an earth wherein there is no sin and death and we didn't lift one finger to remove it. If you're busy working to see the kingdom manifest, that ain't the kingdom. Even Jesus didn't work to manifest the kingdom. He rested in the Father to give him the kingdom as a gift. Oh, Abraham saw the lamb God would provide to cause death to pass over him and he rejoiced in the lamb. Here comes the lamb. Revelation starts off by talking about the lamb. And then it shifts into Alpha and Omega. <laughs> the day of atonement is the day we stand before God. Just like it says in the scriptures everywhere. We're trying to piece together it all. The just and the unjust are raised from the dead. Because God can't deny anybody the tree of life. And he won't. That's why it says the gates are open. And so the just and the unjust will be raised on the last day. And the sons of God, those who believe, are coming to appear in the presence of God. But you know who's coming and standing there also? The serpent. You know what the serpent is doing? 
I'm covering the nakedness of all those who didn't believe on God's lamp. Filling them with fear and shame. Accusing them. Right? And there we're going to stand. And our hearts are going to cry out, Abba. And what's going to happen on that day is we're going to receive the reward that comes from the faith that was revealed in Christ on the cross. Right? And what we're going to see when we receive that reward, a powerful thing is going to happen because that's God proving once and for all that mankind is his children. And he proves that by glorifying our flesh with immortality. And he does that right in the presence of the serpent coming along and saying, they're not the children of God. And God, whoop! Whoop! And when he manifests his glory and immortality inside of our human flesh, listen, what's going to happen is it's going to rebuke the devourer, the accuser of the brethren, that is. The snake who stands opposed to us It's going to be turned into dust right there in our midst. And the scripture will be fulfilled where God told the serpent, because you've done this, you will eat dust all the days of your life. We're going to see it right in our midst. That's the day of atonement. He atones for what the serpent brought into the earth by one man, Adam. And he doesn't atone for it by resetting it. He atones for it by making sure it ain't never going to happen again. (laughs) The destruction of death, the atonement for sin, is the consuming of death to the uttermost where it doesn't exist anymore. And if you want a good picture of the atonement of sin, Jesus, the word made flesh about the atonement for sin. You see the atonement for sin in the resurrection where it says Jesus was raised from the dead, having had sin and death that was in his flesh completely consumed, never to be able to come upon him again, never to be seen in him again. Behold the atonement for sin the manifestation of a life that's free from sin and death and that can never be touched by sin and death. That's the atonement. (laughs) And it is good. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for prophecy. Thank you, Father, that uh, prophecy just reveals your good work, Lord. Father, we come together in the the spirit of your good work. We gather together uh, with the heart um, desiring to see your good work, Lord, desiring to walk in your good work. Thank you, Lord, that you, thank you that you just keep uh, unwrapping your good work in our midst, that you keep showing a different facet of that good work. Thank you that you continuously come to us to captivate our imagination with your good work, that we could walk all our days in the strength of your hand and not the strength of our own hand. Thank you, Father, that you anoint our eyes with eye salve. Thank you, Lord, that you could see us right now in this earth where there is such a thing as death in this earth. And you could see that that death is all the time trying to uncover our nakedness. Thank you, Father, that you anoint our eyes south, Lord, with your sight, where our sight, our hearts are not filled with the shame of our nakedness, but our hearts are filled with the life of your lamb that you've clothed upon us with, Lord. That just as you calmed Adam from the fear and shame that came upon him when you clothed him, Lord, I just thank you, Father, that you anoint our eyes and we see that you're with us, clothing us with your life. Thank you, Father, that your spirit dwells in us, rebuking the devourer in our hearts, interceding in our hearts every time we see things in this world that aren't born from above, bringing patience to our hearts, Lord, persuading us that now we possess an incorruptible life. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. I love you guys. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much.